My name is Vida Sister Prince. Today is Monday, June 21st, 1993, and I am interviewing Walter Lee Hayes on his life for the Oral History Project, Race and Memory in St. Louis. This is my independent study supported by the Missouri Historical Society. Um, would you please tell me um, the date of your birth? I was born October 13, 1923. 1923. So you're 70. Um, when you were growing up, who lived in your home? Uh, when I was growing up, my mother, one brother, and two sisters. There was one sister that I had, whole sisters that never lived in a house that I could remember. Mm -hmm. She was the oldest sister. Okay. Uh, and this, I believe you said you, you were born in Arkansas. In Arkansas, born in Gillette, Arkansas. Okay. And um, you, when did you move to St. Louis? I moved to St. Louis in my third year high school. Completed second year in the high school in Stuttgart, Arkansas, where I was living at the time, and I don't, I don't recall, but I don't think they had through the twelfth at that school. So I came to St. Louis to live with my half brother to finish my high school. And that was your reason for coming to St. Louis. That was my reason for coming to St. Louis. What was life like in Arkansas for you growing up? Well, it was all, I had no father. My mother worked, so I practically grew up by myself. Mm -hmm. I love, always loved school, so it was getting odd jobs and going to school. <laughs> Trying to help my mother with things that she wouldn't have to buy for me. What kind of jobs did you have? Oh, I gardening, uh, stack wood for people. We had a lot of wood stoves back in those days. Mm -hmm. uh, doing errands and at the little school I was going to when I was in grade school, didn't have a janitor and I always was an early riser. I would get up many mornings and go out, go to the school and kept cleaning the school and make the fires, wood stove. Mm -hmm. And eventually I got a job at the janitor of the school. And and what then what were the things that you were able to buy for yourself that your mom well, helped your mother? Well, actually, buy? since about seven years old, I bought everything that I wore. Everything. So. <laughs> Toys for Christmas, clothes to wear, whatever I, I needed, I bought mm -hmm. because she didn't have money, really. What kind of work did your mom do? She did domestic work, cook, working in kitchens and boarding houses. Um, which was, let's see, where am I going next? Um, did you, did you feel that you were getting a good education in Arkansas? Uh, yes. It seems that we had a very good school where I went to. 
my grade school and high school, the teachers weren't all certified teachers, but they were interested in the children. And it turned out that it was a much better school than I had experienced anywhere else I went. In fact, most of the students that left this school excel in, in, in the schools that they left town and went to when they finished. The elementary or the high school? Both? Both. Both. At one, mo at most of the time, it was up only through the with eighth and then the tenth, uh -huh. and they would have to leave and go to finish high school even. Mm -hmm. So when they were surrounding there, Little Rock, Pine Bluff, like I came to St. Louis, mm -hmm. and I would say ninety percent of the students excel in wherever they went in compared with the other schools. So we had a good school. What was the neighborhood like? Neighborhood was typical Arkansas neighborhood. The whites lived on one side of town, the blacks lived on the other side of town. Uh, complete segregation except the businesses and theaters. One difference I found when I came to St. Louis, you could go to the businesses and theaters and places where I grew up, but they always had a separate place. When I found within the same building, mm -hmm. go to the movie, we'd go upstairs where people sat down there. When I came to St. Louis, you just couldn't go. They didn't have facilities where you could be a part in the same building. Mm -hmm. If there was a restaurant, you couldn't go in the building at all. Whereas in the South, they did have facilities, but they were separate. Mm -hmm. That was that was the most striking thing to me. You couldn't even go to the movies together. Here. You couldn't eat in the same places because you just weren't allowed. So it was a big change. It was a change. That was the real change for me. How did how did it? Uh, did you were you involved? Was your contact with white people? Uh, more when you moved here in any way, shape, or form? Uh, no, it was actually less uh, during my high school years mm -hmm. because you didn't go to the theaters, you didn't, you could go to the same stores and buy stuff, but that was the only association. Mm -hmm. The schools were separate, everything, you had your own separate thing. In the South, you were separated, but if there was a restaurant, you could go into the back, say, mm -hmm. and either you could have a separate water fountain. You went to the same movement, but you went upstairs and they went downstairs. It and how did more association? How did you find the South? Did when you came, did your did your brother uh, sit you down and explain how things were, or did you find out by uh, trying to do things and having it not work out? Well, nobody explained it to me, but just observation and going and doing. Uh, you learn right away from talk and environment that you couldn't do this, you couldn't go here. All right. Uh, where did you live when you first came to St. Louis? I live 
the address you want to know? Yes. I live uh, at 3220 Bell Avenue, which is in the central heart of San St. Louis <laughs> proper. Um, and uh, you went to Vashon? I went to Vashon High School. Uh, that was when I came to Vashon, uh, they were graded AAA or AA, which was higher than the area I came from, and they wanted to put me back in grade. And I wouldn't accept it. I sent and got my report cards and all. And finally, because of my report, they decided that I wouldn't have to go back. But the mayor, like I, when I stated before, the schools, although the certification wasn't as great, the teachers were more interested in the students. And after my first test in each class that I was in, I'm sure I never had to take any more tests because I knew all the subject matter all the way through the rest of my school year. Did you like Fashan? Well, I liked Fashan, but I had to get a job when I came here. In fact, I had to miss my first half year because the situation at my brother's home wasn't what I thought it was. So I had to get a job to buy clothes and books and stuff <laughs> to go to school. Uh, and I didn't really spend much time at school except for I, I was not involved in any of the social aspects of the school Walter. because I would leave school and go to work yeah. and come home and study and go get up and go to, go to school. What kind of job did you find? Uh, one of the placement teachers found me an excellent job at Prestite Engineering Company which was a janitorial job, but it paid the wages I was making. I can remember about $13 a week, which was as much as some uh, heads of family was making. So I didn't have a problem after I got located on this job. Mm -hmm. um, all right. Uh, so you went, let's see, what was the neighborhood like? On Bell? Uh, it was average, all black neighborhood. Uh, no problems. At the time, there were some gangs, but they weren't like the gang, gangs that we know of today. <laughs> yeah. Mostly rivaled between each other, and they didn't bother the other kids too much except they might take your money if you went to the movie. Mm -hmm. But there wasn't any real violence. Walter, whose idea was it, had you happened to come to St. Louis to finish your education? I don't know whether some other people might have just not continued. Is that? Well, is like that, I said, I wanted to go to school. I, for the wrong reason, I guess. I, the environment I grew up in 
really made me question whether I was as good as a white person in educational matters. And I had always wanted to go to a Big Ten school, which was these schools for people that didn't have money, you know, to see if I could do the same school work as a white person because we were taught, we felt that we weren't, we were inferior, really did. I grew up feeling that I had to prove that I was as good as <laughs> could do anything anybody else could do. <clears throat> I, I said, and that's been a large part of my thinking and I think it was, now I think it was doing something for the wrong reason. A lot of, I feel, wasted effort and thinking like that, <clears throat> try to prove something that you shouldn't have had to prove. Energy. Yeah, waste, wasted energy and thinking. Uh, so I always wanted to excel, to finish as high as I could in school. And the reason I came to St. Louis, my half-brother came down to Arkansas and said, come on, live with me in St. Louis. I'll see that you get through school. You know, big talk. Somebody from the north coming down to the south. Uh, so that's why I really came. Found out that what he was saying was not really necessarily truth. <laughs> he was just shooting off amongst people in the south. So, so when I came to St. Louis, I was still on my own and really didn't have much help and going through school. Um, was your mother helpful in, in your making your decisions? Or? No, that was, I guess, one of the problems all my life. My mother was, most kids, when you got about the eighth grade, you knew more than your parents did. Uh, you had more book knowledge and probably more knowledge about most things. They were just workers. Try to bring, trying to bring up their family. They had a lot of common sense, but not much, no education whatsoever. So all of my decisions, like I said, I had to buy all of my clothes when I was about six or seven. I had to make all of my decisions uh, since I was about that age. I grew up real fast. <laughs> Walter, what do you think is the difference between someone like yourself who was on their own then and somebody today? Uh, I think the difference is this. Do you understand? And the not child just of today me. And the child, child, of, just child of my day had to grow up. He had to learn to make decisions very early. Right or wrong, he had to make a decision because, like I said, once you got about sixth or seventh grade, you knew more than your parents did. And they didn't, in my case, they didn't try to help me make decisions. Or to guide you towards an or education. Or to guide me because they had no vision of where you should go, you know. Today, uh, I don't think children have to make any decisions. <laughs> uh, they don't 
try to make the decision because the parents do try to guide them, but in many cases, the TV that does the guiding rather than we didn't. We had to make our own recreation. We didn't have TVs. We had to make our own toys in many cases. And I was, I was not. Tip, I was typical. It was like that with most students. Of course, most many children did have complete families—a father and a mother. I just had a mother, and she was never there because she was out trying to keep a roof over her head and trying to keep food on the table. In that sense, I may have been a little non-typical. Alright. Um, so you, you came here and started working and went to school. Uh, it doesn't sound like or did you have any leisure time? No, not, not, I liked sports, but I didn't have time to participate in sports. And I, I just really had no social life. All I was interested in was school and, and my job. And uh, did, so the, besides the differences in St. Louis that we talked about before where you could go or not go, did you find the um, uh, what would how would you like me to refer colored Negro at that time people? Um, how did you think of yourself at that time? Uh, well, we use the term Negro more our color. Like I said, I, I'm still at, during this stage trying to prove myself, <laughs> see, see if I'm as, uh, somewhere or other, my, I got instilled through my family that I was as good as anybody else, but to see if I could learn as well as anybody was one of my big concerns. Did you just say you were still trying to do that? I'm still trying to do that even after I went out in the service and came out. <laughs> Even in college, did you did you um, did the church play a role in your life? Uh, yes. In the South, you grew up either either as a Baptist or Methodist religious person. I, my family was Methodist. I grew up as A.M.E. Methodist. My father was a Methodist preacher. Uh, I went to Sunday school every Sunday. I went to church every Sunday. Uh, when I was small, but as I got grew up and when I got in high school, I began to question some things, a lot of things that we were taught at church. Uh, a lot of things didn't make sense to me, and I kind of began to do a little re religious research on my own to find out really why it was so why so many things were so contradictory. You know, you you had to be a Christian to go to heaven, and this is what we were taught. Mm -hmm. now, what about all that 
when I got old, I learned that there were many people, more people that were non-Christian than there were Christian. Well, what were going to happen to all these people? Mm -hmm. So I began to question uh, what I was being taught, and a lot of it I finally couldn't accept. So I began to drift away from the church, um, the Christian religion, I'd say. Did you pick up another one? Well, uh, I didn't really until I got out of the service. And then I went around to different religious groups to try to find out where I fit in. And I found the Ethical Society here in St. Louis was about the closest to what I felt I could believe what I could work with or what I could work in. Um, all right. Um, maybe I'm, I'm looking at my questions and you've answered so many of them already. Um, did anyone, did your parents or were children taught that there was an appropriate behavior with people of a different color? Uh, you grew up not really being taught that, but by action and words of the different people you ran into. I can remember when I must have been about five or six years old, I was walking down in town, called it Main Street downtown, where the stores were, with my mother. And I accidentally bumped into an elderly white, pert white man. And he popped me. <laughs> Uh, as hard as he could. I'm a five or six year old kid and knocked me against the glass of the store and I almost broke the glass and my mother could only grab me and hold me close to her. So you got, growing up in the South, you had action like that which began to teach you that there was a place for you. You don't get too close to them. You stay out of their way. You don't want to get hurt. <laughs> Um, but she did hold you close. She did hold me close. I forget I'm talking to this. And uh, that's, that's all she could do. You can imagine how she felt. Um, and you're still touched by it. It still hurts. Well, that, that really bothered me for a long, long time. Why would an elderly person hit a little defenseless boy. I was just running and skipping up and down the street. <laughs> um, was there a, a person that you, that guided you in any way ever? That you well, yes. Was important to you? Uh, Several people, and you, you, I would identify with some of the teachers in school. Uh, when I was real young, it was my Sunday school teacher. When I got 
in these fifth, sixth, seventh grades and up, it was some school teacher at the school that I would always identify with. Um, all right. So we'll kind of move on to St. Louis. You graduated from Vashon? I graduated from Vashon, and at that time, 1942, I believe. 1942, uh, World War II was going on, mm -hmm. and every able-bodied uh, man was being drafted. We had to come out of high school. Today we come out of high school, we had to go register. That and was the law. That was the law. And within a few weeks, you would be called. <laughs> within a few weeks, I had my ID card to identify me if a policeman stopped me wondering why I was not in the service, but I was not called. Everybody else that came out of high school with me was gone. So I went down, one mistake, this is one mistake I've made in life. I had scholarship, I was the valedictorian of my school. I had scholarships to about five or six black schools, you know, uh, Lincoln, school in Tennessee, several prominent black schools, complete scholarships. But I was really concerned about why I wasn't being drafted. You know, even though I'm black, I had the patriotic feeling I should be over there doing my part. I went to the draft board, asked him why I was not called. No records. <laughs> I said, we'll look for the records, you come back a couple of weeks, we'll see what, what's happened. So I go back in a couple of weeks, no records. So he asked me to come back again. So I went back a third time. He, he couldn't find my records, so he said, well, we'll sell this now. I'll let you make up. <laughs> we'll make up some records right now. So he made up records. And at that time, you couldn't choose the branch of service that you wanted to. But since he was making up some new records with me, and since I was so persistent, he asked me which branch that I wanted to go in. Mm -hmm. So I said the Marine Corps. So then. Two weeks, I'm going off to the Marine. But I was out, scot free. Could have gone to my school and finished college. Isn't that incredible? Oh. But I just had, I just didn't feel right being on the street, and I knew it wasn't anything. Uh, you, you made, you, you said you were valedictorian. I'd like to just go back to that for a minute before we get to the Marine Corps. But uh, um, that was quite a Quite a wonderful thing. Yeah, well, uh, like I said, what I knew in the 10th grade, these people, students were still learning in 11th and 12th grade. Mm -hmm. So it really wasn't much of an effort <laughs> because most most of my time spent in high school here was helping a teacher grade papers because I didn't have to take the test. So besides Lincoln, where, where were you? Uh... Well, I was... Uh, I, can, I can't think of the name now, but it was a school in Tennessee, that Nashville, Tennessee, that was real popular. That, and I had a scholarship to uh, 
one of the schools in Atlanta and had a scholarship to Wilberforce in Ohio, Wilf, uh, college in Wilberforce, Ohio. That was, uh, Where? Wilberforce. Wilberforce? I think that was the name of the college. It was a black, it was an AME college. But some of the notable yeah. colleges around there in Lincoln and Jefferson City. Yes, you mean <laughs> you probably didn't. All right, so now you're in the Marines from. I'm in the Marines. <laughs> Why'd you choose the Marines? Uh, gung ho, you know, best the best fighting unit going. I wanted to be. I always wanted to be the best and in the best. What was a Negro able to do in the Marines? Uh, when I went in the Marine Corps, it was completely segregated, like all the other government services was. They didn't really want any blacks in the Marine Corps, but they had to take them. So they weren't going to let any blacks be officers. And like myself, when they opened up the Marine Corps for blacks, there were mostly educated blacks went in the Marine Corps. High school, uh, at least high school graduate and above. You had uh, master's degrees, degrees, and at this particular time, the Marine Corps had made a decision that there were not going to be any black officers in the Marine Corps. And the paradox was the method of picking the officers was supposed to come from the unit that had the highest IQ quotas. <laughs> the black Marine Corps unit had the highest IQ quota of any Marine unit in the Marine. So this was a problem for him. I found this out about, th well, three, three other guys and I decided to apply for office candidateship, although we knew we, we wasn't going to become officers. So why did you decide to do it if you knew? What, what was the motive behind your, or the reasoning? Because uh, we found out the regulation that the IQ quota was where they was taking most of the, where they were supposed to take the people from to make officers. We knew, uh, one of the fellows knew a person in the Pentagon and he told them, he told this fellow that this is the way they're supposed to pick officers. You guys have the highest IQ quota of any unit but you're not going to get it off. So we applied after we got this information from a friend of one of the fellows at the Pentagon. And once we applied, <laughs> uh, our commanding officer put us in different units and each one of us was shipped overseas within two weeks in a different outfit. <laughs> that's, that's how they broke that up. But in the meantime, when this information was brought to the attention that gotten out, they went to the chain gang, all the prisoners in the South, and the guy that couldn't even read and write and said, if you want to volunteer to become a Marine, you can get out, you get your freedom, if you come back, you be free. <laughs> so they draft, they got low IQ people from prisoners and put in the Marine Corps to lower the IQ quota. So they could not 
make officers out of this outfit now. And this is, a, With, this is a fact. This is a fact. These are facts. Within a month's time, our unit became from the highest IQ quota of intelligence to the lowest. So now they couldn't even make fighting units out of us. They had to make depot units. This is picking up the dead and burying people and unloading ships and loading ships. But this is one way the white person, once he gets the information, he always finds a way to control the situation. What they're doing, they don't know the value of what, of what they're of the doing. the lives that they're messing up. Um, you went overseas. I went overseas. Uh, where did you go? And went to Hawaii and Ireland. Well, we were, like I said, our outfits were all became all depot outfits. All black marine corps became depot outfits because uh, when they brought all these criminals uh, with low IQs, many of them couldn't even read and write. They had to teach them enough to read and write so they could learn their basic orders. When they brought those people in, our entire unit was not fit for anything but depot and labor type units. We couldn't become industry, we couldn't become anything but working units. So that's what you did? Well, yeah. Uh, I got, well, I got shipped overseas and we got with a division and we went to Hawaii and out for a few weeks, went to New Herbides. And then we were shipped to Guadalcanal, where we were to train to go on, the, go on the front to pick up the dead and unload the boat and do the ship. It wasn't a fighting unit, it was a depot, which was a working unit. Oh, but right. we were connected with a fighting division. Uh -huh. had, they, had they been fighting on the Guadalcanal? When did that happen? When I got to Guadalcanal, they had Guadalcanal secured. There was still enemy. Japan, enemy Japanese on the island, but they weren't organized in any way. They were loose, and so they the might, battle for Guadalcanal was was, was secure, right? But there was there was some of them were still on the island, um, and that became the jumping off base to go f to further islands closer to Japan. Um, all right, shall we shift back and come back to? After the war, is there anything that you would like to add to the Marine? Uh, well, for some reason or other, I was very fortunate because on a couple occasions, uh, I was supposed to go with the division to the actual battlefield, our whole entire unit. But we had. <laughs> A white captain, we still don't have any black officers who had some con contact in Washington. And on two different occasions, we were supposed to board the ship that next morning to go to a fighting area to the front. He called Washington and got these orders changed. And the guys that was coming to the island to replace us got off. And got back on the fight on the ship going to the to the front, and on two occasions, all of these people were killed. 
So really, I should be dead. <laughs> but this this is what happened. He did this twice. Got our orders changed, and the people that were coming to get further training for about two or three months before they went to the front got just they came off the ship and got on the ship, going to the front, and they got killed. <laughs> I mean, all, right. all of them got wiped out. That's a so. scary thoughts. All right, so let's let's bring you back to St. Louis. You came back after the war. I came back after the war to St. Louis, and I got three years in the service and had the chance to go to college on my charts with government help. I had an uncle that lived in the GI Bill. The GI Bill. I had an uncle that lived in Minnesota, so I had the Big Ten school, the University of Minnesota. So all this is still in the back of my mind. Yes. So I it's went, like a childhood dream. Yeah. I went uh, to St. Paul and stayed with my uncle and went to the University of Minnesota for two years. And my biggest problem in school, I, all my life I had made all my decisions, so a counselor didn't mean anything to me. <laughs> mm -hmm. I would pick whatever subject I was interested in this particular semester. And this was, in a sense, a, a waste because I was taking some subjects which I didn't need it towards a degree because I already had a sufficient amount in that area. And I wound up over first I, th I think I spent two years there, then I came back to St. Louis. But I wound up with about 130 credits, you know, <laughs> and only 60 <laughs> that would go towards any degree with that I might want to get. Mm -hmm. So my lack of direction hurt me in that sense. Mm -hmm. But uh, I thought I should take what subject I, I wanted to take and was interested in at that particular time. And you were working all the time? Working all, all the time. I worked all the way through my, all of my school year. Um, so why did you decide to come back to St. Louis? Well, uh, one of my goals was satisfied. I felt that I could learn along with a white person, really. Uh -huh. and. Uh, the person that I had lived with in St. Louis was sort of like my second mother, and I wanted to come back and stay with her. And I just came back. I just left. And was that your brother's wife? His girlfriend. His girlfriend. Right. And she was older? She was older, like my mother. Um. Plus, uh, the girl that I had been in love with all my life in Arkansas, we decided to get married and we decided to come to St. Louis and stay. That was twofold. Yeah. And so you did? So I did. Alright. Um, and you decided, so tell me how you went to where you went? How'd you start your schooling again? And uh, well, I had finished about, like I said, two years in the University of Minnesota. Came back to St. Louis, got married to my hometown girlfriend from Arkansas. 
and we started a family and I started going to school when I could. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and you went to where? I went to St. Louis University first and I can't remember what it was that made me make the change, but I left there and went to Well, you on the phone you said there was some, something, you were more comfortable and you went to night school at Washington U and got your BA. Right. Uh, and, and the, well you couldn't go to Washington U. At, when I first got, came back and got in St. Louis U, I could not, yeah. blacks were not allowed to go to Washington And like I said, that was my when I first got in Cole. When I came back to St. Louis, the organization had just been formed in Core. Core. Mm -hmm. And I had gone in the service, luck enough not to get killed. And when I came back out of the service, and I think many black war men were the same way, they just were not going to accept too much segregation. So when I this found out about this organization, it was just what I needed to channel my energies in to try to make things better. Mm -hmm. How'd you find out about it? Uh, I learned a pretty bridge somewhere in the Marine Corps when I was in the Marine Corps. And I was playing bridge with a bridge group at a particular building, and this group was meeting in the same building. Uh -huh. Accident. And by accident, I don't know whether somebody came up, how it happened, but we were meeting in the same building and I found out that this was a group working against segregation. So naturally, I, I became a member of it. Well, tell me about CORE. Tell me about how you involved yourself with it and who was there, what kind of people, and your comfort level. and. Well, uh, and what they were this about. this was a nonviolent group. This was the philosophy. Corbett was started by I guess you heard this many times by George Hauser, really, who was a ordained minister. And in short, I think he could not find any church acceptable because they practiced one thing and they preached another. Now this is this is this, nationwide. You're talking about. This is about. nationwide. Yes. He, he could not find ministry in a church acceptable because they were all hypocritical. You know, the preacher's going to do what most of the members want in any church because they control the money. <laughs> he could not accept this, so his ministry became starting an organization to work against. Segregation that became his ministry. His name was George Howard. He started CORE and he's responsible, I think, more than anybody in this country for the civil rights movement. So you went to meeting, you tell me. Went to meetings. I went to meetings and became an integral part of the CORE movement. Our, uh, Due to our, well, our project in St. Louis was mainly to do away with segregation in theaters and restaurants because 
you spent money, you had to eat, dine, 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 everything. We felt that this was basic. If you go in a place to buy clothes, you ought to be able to sit down and eat in the place. So we worked on the restaurants and the theaters basically at first, not bothering too much about the job, but eventually it evolved into jobs in every aspect uh, of the society. And it was a direct action because the founders of CORE tried to instill a philosophy of nonviolence. I was not necessarily a nonviolent person, but I believe that no point in using violence when you didn't have anything to do violence with. You know, all the guns and ammunition were in the hands of, of, of the white people. So to me, it made sense to think that way, although I did not accept that as my philosophy. But in working with the group, it began to instill nonviolence into you in some degrees, although I never did accept that philosophy. You could have I, been more violent. I used it as a tactic because mm -hmm. in, in a minority, practically, violence cannot win because you, you would always get wiped out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and going back to, to give you a little example of what I mean, when we were in the Marine Corps, we were on Hawaiian Island. We were one little company, about 90 men, and an entire vision of about over a thousand men. And we had friction with a white person, with some white Marines. We'd go to town and they would jump us. <laughs> we would go to town and we would get even. And at one time it got so bad that that their entire unit had our little 90 men surrounded with mortars, tanks, helicopters. All we had was M1 rifles. And if it hadn't been for Coast Guard, they might have killed all of us. So at that, that taught me that violence will not work when you do not have the proper ammunition to do violence with. So you may have wanted to, but you may have wanted to, knew but this was the way. Practically, it just wasn't feasible. All right. Now, you did you were you at the post office at this point? Uh, yeah. At this, by, <laughs> this is how I, this is how I got in the post office. When I came back to St. Louis, this press that in and come to had work for liked me and they. I could always come back and get a job there. Mm -hmm. Well, when I came back to St. Louis, I did go back and get a job. And it's always immediately a problem arose. There were few blacks, mostly whites. Uh, we did the dirty work, of course, and they had separate locker room facilities. And our locker room facilities was in a little sh dirty shack toilet, we had to eat, we had to dress, and it was really unsanitary. So we got together and went and asked the president to build us. We weren't asking for sacred, you know, 
to desegregate the place. We wasn't asked to be put in the locker room. We wanted sanitary locker room. <laughs> Otherwise, we go report it to the Board of Health, somebody. But you told them that? Yeah. yeah. So I was one of the spokesmen, of course. Uh, the president agreed. He said, you're right. So, but what he did, he and the vice president agreed to put us all in one together, the whites and the blacks, oh. and which was big enough. The locker room, they had was big enough, but they were going to build a bigger locker room and put us all together. But we didn't ask for that. When the president and the vice president went on vacation, which usually was the whole summer, the superintendent, which was a race person from Kentucky, didn't like that. A race that. person, a racist? A racist. <laughs> he didn't like the idea of putting all these people together. So when they went on vacation, he called me into the office and said some of the men had complained and that he was going to move us in their locker room, which they had used, and put them in the big new locker room that they were building for all of us. I said, well, no, we didn't ask for integration. I said, all we wanted was a new locker room. If they're not satisfied with the room they have, not let them stay down there <laughs> and put us in the new locker room. And he didn't like that kind of talk. So we had before I went to see him that day, we had all the blacks had gotten together and said, if one of us get fired, we're all going to walk out. <laughs> the next day, I had gotten fired, another guy had gotten fired, and the other guys refused to walk out. <laughs> they wouldn't leave. So that ended my career at this place. But and this was press tight. This was press tight engineering company. But when the president and the vice president came back, they would not change the situation like originally it was. But they said if we want our job back, we'd come back. And I would not go back under those circumstances. And after a few other minor jobs, that's when I went in the post office. And when you enter the post office, at what at what level do you enter? When, I, you? when you enter the post office, you either enter as a clerk or a mail handler. Mail handler is a grade lower than a clerk. That's the hard workers, the stevedore type workers. Clerks the one that throw the mail. That's basically easy. Mm -hmm. When I entered the post office, uh, you had to go in as a substitute, and you go in, and if they need you that day, they'd call you. <laughs> if they didn't, you might come in and stay for the hours and go back home and no work. And what, what branch, where were you? I was at the main post main? office. Okay. At the time I entered the post office, there were no black supervisors. They had, Explain. there were no black supervisors, mm -hmm. of course. 
in the cafeteria, you had to eat in one section. It was segregated just like the rest of society was. And there was almost no chance for promotion. And, and we were in 19... It was in 1952? or 19... I think I went in in 1951. Uh, but even so, a clerk, it was a secure job, and it was a good paying job. Benefits was better than the pay. What was the pay and, and what was the benefits? Well, the pay at the time I went in was a, I think, was a dollar twenty-seven cents an hour, which was good. The benefits was you had uh, retirement, you had medical, you had hospital insurance, you had vacation with pay. You know, you had. At that time, the post office probably had the best benefits of any job you could get. And were they the same benefits as the white? Same, oh yeah. Same pay as same the white? Same pay as the white. If you, if you, the, the, the difference was that you, you, got in, you went in as a clerk, and then if you had a PhD degree, you probably stayed as a clerk. Mm -hmm. And you ate in a different place, and, and you, you ate in a different the bathroom. Place. And no, the bathroom was the same. But you, oh, oh, really? Bathrooms you had, weren't segregated. The way they put, they kind of you had a cafeteria partition off. You had to sit in a certain areas if you were black. Uh -huh. You're white. You had to sit in the other areas because that did not last very long. That changed pretty soon after I got uh -huh. in. But the bathrooms were not segregated. Bathroom were not segregated. <laughs> I just I thought about that, but they weren't. Hadn't thought about it. No. Okay. But it's more or less separate the same pattern as the rest of society. So so you were involved in core, and you were uh, at the post office at the post office at the same time. Um, tell me about the activities that you yourself. Uh, were involved in in core, the ones that you did that uh, you remember. Well, in core, we we were involved in. Uh, I want a personal. I Walter Hayes went to Walgreens or. Oh uh, yeah, well, I wherever went, you went, uh, I want some personal stories. Okay, here. well, uh, I was most active once I got in it, and. One of the projects I remember was Stick, Spare, and Fuller. That's the dealers now. Mm -hmm. uh, that was one of the first places we chose to integrate. And we sat in in that cafeteria, uh, I think. The lunch counter. The lunch counter for stools. Stools for six or eight months continuously. And that was a Tutenberg restaurant downtown. We worked on that. Walgreens, we worked on that. Tutenberg. There was a little small bakery type cafeteria. And the guy was highly religious. He was Catholic. And somebody found us out and we appealed to him. Like Irv Dagan and I went and talked to the man and said, how can you be a Catholic person, highly religious person, and don't let people come and sit here? 
and from that conversation, he changed. <laughs> and he opened up? He opened up. He was one of the first places to open up in the downtown St. Louis. And it was because we played on his religious belief. So but we used whatever tactics we could yeah. that was nonviolent. That you felt for each that we place. Felt would work, yeah. And uh, well, I, I was at one time. I was whatever we were involved. In, I was in not swinging on the arch, but when we were when they were building the arch, core was real active, and uh, we attacked their policy of not hiring blacks to work in the place and construction work. Construction work. Uh, we were active in that area. How did, how did Core feel when Percy Green uh, did his? Well, uh, Core kind of was almost split up over that outfit. Uh, oddly enough, we had a. Now Percy was. Percy was part of Core. Okay, mm -hmm. this is how he got his organization. I suggested that it was my suggestion that we have an action committee in court. That was a committee that was really formed by my suggestion. Core became, I mean, Percy Green became chairman of that committee. And he became a little bit more action minded, more score people. And eventually, he took his committee and made a separate organization. That's how his organization was formed. Action stands for? Action. <laughs> Tying yourself to the door and locking yourself to the doorknobs and laying down in the street. And most, many core members didn't want to go that far. In other words, we felt that a lot of his action was precipitating violence. And we were not a violent organization. So, Eventually, he split off and kept his group, and he named it Action. <laughs> but he uh, he was a core member, and at one time that was a committee in the core group. And he, when he blocked highways and tied himself to doorknobs, many of the core members felt that that was not appropriate. That's not what they wanted to do. Um, okay, what were you? Where were you going and what were you doing? Did you have any leisure time at that point? I mean, did you go At the time I was with Core, I was mm -hmm. uh, raising my family <laughs> and going to state, night school and work. And you lived uh, then on Cottage, was it? I lived on Cottage. Uh, 3700. And then I moved, that was my we first got married. That was the first address I had mm -hmm. when we got married. And then we moved to 5110 Palm Street. How was St. Louis to live in as, uh, as with a family then? Your children were? Uh, what was it like? I had no problem uh, with that. I don't remember any problem. They went to the public schools. Which ones did they go to? Uh, my son, my children went to a couple schools. 
the school, we had some good school teachers and we had some that wasn't so good. And it would have been my philosophy that you go through the school and if something is wrong, you try to get it straightened out. So both my children did really well in public school. Uh, at one time, I remember the ethical society now, and I had them going to the ethical society Sunday school. And one of the ladies was familiar with it. It was a private school out here on Clayton. On, uh, it was in Clayton. I can't remember the name of the school, but... Wilson School? No, it wasn't Wilson School. It was named after John Burroughs. John Burroughs. John Burroughs. Uh, one of the persons... It's a high school. No. Well, maybe, no John Burroughs is 7th through 12th. There's Community School. Community School. Is that the one that was in Clay? No, no. Both, both, both community and boroughs are out on Clayton Road, on, on Lay Road and Price Road. No, well, it wasn't. It, it, it was still. It, this school was in Clayton off of Brentwood. Uh, A private school? Private school. But anyway, I can't think of it. You would know the name if I could think of uh, it. was grade school up, didn't, didn't go all the way through high school. I can't remember what grade, but one of the members of the Ethics Society said she could get my son in that school if I would permit it. I said, okay. <laughs> and she got him in the school. I went to a picnic at one time. He was he was a bright child. It wasn't Wilson's school. No, it wasn't Wilson's school. It was, name, it was the man's name, and he lived not too far from me. Oh, I can't think of it. But anyway, for one semester, he was in the school, and I went to a picnic they had, and I was oh, talking. Taylor School. No, it wasn't Taylor School. <laughs> I was talking to his French teacher, and he was talking to me about my son. He said, "Yeah, very bright, bright child. He learns well." He said, "But if I were you, I would take him out of the school." He said, "We are nothing but babysitters for <laughs> you." There's a lot of wealth, well, mostly wealthy people that sent their children to the school. You see, we are nothing but babysitters. I would take him out. So I took him out, put him back in, in a public school. Isn't that interesting? Uh, and they both did well in school. I, if, if I went to the PTA meetings and whatever, and if there was something wrong in a class, I would go and get it straightened out. Like at one time, he was in a class, and the teacher would put him to sleep. I'd ask him, what did they do today? And he, every day, he was coming home and said, we slept. We had to lay down on desk and sleep for two hours. The teacher was sick, and she was going to sleep in class. Disgusting. <laughs> um, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was, and I, this, this, to me, this was amusing. I went out to see about this, I went to another teacher that I knew and told her what was happening. And she knew about it. She said, it was a friend of hers. She said, well, don't go to the principal. I'll talk to her. And let's get him transferred to another room. So this was couple's school? Couple's school. 
So I said, okay, well, I'll let you handle it. Next week he was in another class. <laughs> Where did they go to high school? Uh, it went to high school at uh, Northwest High School, which was just integrated. Had been integrated. Just had been integrated. And Southwest, he finally, son, my daughter finally wound up in Southwest High School. And then we moved Southwest? To, Southwest. We moved to University City and she finished at University City High School. But my son finished at Southwest mm -hmm. High School. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, so you felt uh, that you do you have anything else you want to say about CORE? Uh, well, I, I think